This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress and taste like a milkshake without all the crap. Oh, cool. No. Oh, cool. No. Oh, cool. Really? Oh, cool. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saber, and Amazon. This podcast is sponsored by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Because you listen to this show, we know that responsible recreation is important to all of you. Increasing visitation and rapid expansion of human-powered recreation has adverse impact to the delicate desert ecosystem. What climbers and other recreationists need are more thoughtful land management plans, which can help minimize the impact of camping and recreating in fragile desert environments. Help protect the places you love to climb by asking the Bureau of land management to better manage recreation. Visit SUA.org that's S-U-W-A slash recreation or text Utah R-E-C to 52886 to get started and protect wild Utah. Hey, a quick heads up. Episode 40 contains discussion about alcohol and substance use. You know, it kind of spontaneously arose. You and I started chatting through Instagram and I had remembered that you'd had a podcast that was a climbing that's about more than climbing. And I thought that it would be a really great venue to talk about 
recovery. And by recovery, I mean people that have undergone some kind of substance use or mental health dilemma in their life and been able to find their balance again and resume functioning in a way that feels really satisfying and safe for them. Because I know that for myself, I have had a lot of shame surrounding my own struggle with addiction and the stigma that surrounds that. And I think that the more that we bring that into public discussion, the more that people can feel like they can support each other and talk about it openly and not act like it's this thing that we have to hide. I think that a lot of the demonization of addiction comes back to our philosophical framework about the nature of choice. And I think that when you, when you frame a person that is using a substance and it's derailing their life to the point where they're neglecting their sleep, their nutrition, their human relationships, their work, the list goes on, right? It's easy to look from the outside and say, why are they choosing to do that? Why are they hurting the people they love? Why are they neglecting themselves and allowing their life to deteriorate? In December of 2021, Kyle reached out to the podcast about recovery from substance use, mental health, and the relationship between those and climbing. For a long time, he avoided talking about his own journey in a public forum, which is a classic example of the problem at hand. Last March, we sat down to discuss how we can work to break down the antiquated and inaccurate belief that addiction is a moral failing, instead of what we know it to be, a chronic treatable condition, not a choice. And so if we have that perspective of every person freely chooses every choice in their life at every moment, then I think that that perspective would make sense. But I think that the landscape may be shifting a lot because of some of the advances in neuroscience. Um, so I, I was a psychology minor in my undergrad with an emphasis on neuroscience. So through fMRI, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging, we're able to see some of the brain structures that are being activated when a person is feeling the sensation of craving. You know, if you were to show, say, a person addicted to cocaine, a pile of cocaine next to a razor or something like that, certain brain areas would really light up. And those brain areas are in a dopaminergic tract, it's called the mesolimbic reward pathway. And the current theory on that is that this structure of the brain, which is more primitive than the prefrontal cortex being sort of our executive decision-making, it regulates our motivational system. And if I was to reduce that, I would say that our motivational system essentially is to seek pleasure and to avoid pain, right? And so addictive processes by their nature are something that sabotages that system because when you have a stimulus that gives you a reward that is you know, a factor of 10, 100, 1,000 times more than getting a promotion at your job or getting a good night's sleep or being affirmed by someone you really admire, then that's really confusing, right? Suddenly your motivational system is like, okay, well, why would we pursue a promotion at work or a healthy relationship when there's this substance or stimulus that offers such a greater reward for such less effort. Um, I think as organisms, we're always striving for efficiency. 
So when you start to look at it as a series of events that undermines someone's ability to freely choose the course of their life, then it changes how much you can hold them personally responsible at all times for quote unquote freely choosing a behavior. For anyone who's familiar with Pavlov and the idea of ringing a bell and that signifying feeding time for an animal. Well, with humans, we have such a sophisticated nervous system that you can make several more degrees of separation. For example, if someone who is an IV user sees a spoon, you know, the spoon is what the drug goes in and then the water goes in and then that goes into a syringe and then that syringe goes into an arm and then that goes into the bloodstream. I mean, that's about six or seven different degrees of separation, but yet that spoon is still a powerful trigger for somebody in that position. And so if you were to show an image of a spoon to that person and then hook them to an fMRI scan, you would see that area of the brain light up like a Christmas tree and that area of the brain being the mesolimbic reward pathway that sort of signifies incentive salience, which is our sort of ability to experience an environment and the things that are most important to us sort of pop out. You know, you can think of it as you go to a Christmas party, which thing on the tray looks the most tasty, right? That would be incentive salience. It's a very complex phenomenon. And, and I would say having a working definition of addiction that goes beyond just substances and people is really important because any relationship that you have to a behavior or a stimulus that is so compelling that all of the other things in your life that normally take precedence fade into the background, that's what addiction is. You know, it can be gambling, it can be sex, it can be work, climbing. it can be climbing. <laughs> okay, I'm on something. You are listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's a funny sense of uncomfortable. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. <laughs> Easy cheesy. My name is Kyle Harmon Townsend. I usually just go by Kyle Townsend for short because the hyphenated last name tends to throw uh, people and especially computers for a loop. And I'm 35. I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I'm currently living there. I'm staying with my parents right now and applying to physical therapy schools. Kyle and I met in Chattanooga to sit down and record this important episode. But before we get into it, we wanted to first emphasize the urgent need to eliminate stereotyping and discrimination surrounding addiction. One huge way is by revising the language that we use while discussing substance use disorder. 
Research indicates that the use of person-first language is essential for stigma reduction, focusing on the person and not their condition. You can check out more resource links at the end of the transcript online. But yeah, I'm really excited about the physical therapy thing. I'm applying to Winston-Salem State in my hometown. I'm also applying to UTC here in Chattanooga, as well as University of Colorado Denver and University of Utah in Salt Lake. So we'll see. Is your preference um, I think I'd be really happy in all those places. They're all great climbing communities. And I really want to be somewhere that has enough of a vibrant climbing scene that I can eventually open my own private practice and do coaching as well as rehabilitation for climbing specific injuries. And it's um, a very informal and casual thing. I haven't built a website yet, but that's in the works. I own two domains. One is innerpeaktraining.com and the other is peakperformanceclimbing.com. And so my idea with those is the inner peak training I want to be more inclusive. The phrase life coaching has become so overused and has kind of gotten a bad rap, but I want that to be a service that is something that I can use to support people in recovery or people who just need an ally because they're having a hard time in life. Not quite therapy per se. Uh, and then the peak performance climbing would be, of course, climbing specific coaching. It's just nice to have somebody that unconditionally supports you. You know, you can get that with friends and partners sometimes, but there inevitably arises this role conflict if you overburden a person in your life, constantly sort of like barraging them with needing support and help, um, that can be problematic. Whereas if you have somebody that their specific intentional role is to do that, then that can be a really great and mutualistic relationship. I would say that I am a very curious person I love learning and I really love to geek out on science and try to understand how things work. I'm very much an environmentalist. I'm very much a proponent of gender equality and racial equality. I see the things that are happening in the world and it, like many of us, I'm sure I'm very troubled by the way that we're treating our environment, each other. You know, this thing that's happening with Russia and Ukraine is horrible and breaks my heart that we still as a species haven't figured out how to transcend some of the aggression and more primitive instincts that we have. But I'm also a very emotive person and I also am very affectionate and very loving and I love my friends. I love the climbing community because of how we have this ready-made network globally of people that we can connect with and usually it's not just the climbing. Most of us have shared values that go far beyond that. Like many, I was exposed to climbing through a birthday party at a climbing gym. And I had a childhood friend, and he and his dad were into climbing at this crag called Pilot Mountain that's about 30 minutes from Winston-Salem. So I went out there and got to climb outside for a few times and just thought it was amazing. Um, but then I became a teenager and got really sidetracked with um, you know the typical teenager stuff. And it got put on the back burner until I was in my early 20s. I was working at a restaurant and uh, one of the bartenders there was super into climbing. He was this really gruff ex-Marine guy and he kind of took me under his wing and showed me how to trad climb. It's a lot of the climbing in North Carolina, as you know, is gear. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started climbing at Moore's Wall and I got really psyched after that.
like most adults, teens are highly motivated to pursue the reward and avoid pain, but their decision-making skills are still limited. This affects their ability to accurately weigh risk and make good decisions, versus some of the really bad teen decisions you could make, including, but not limited to, listening to Last Resort by Papa Roach because nobody understood you or would tell you you're fine, tube tops, posting your mood to live journal, your aim screen name, aim away message, and of course, your first aim boyfriend. Oh, and body glitter. Like, so much body glitter. This also includes decisions about drugs and alcohol. Yeah, so I smoked marijuana for the first time when I was 13 and tried alcohol around that exact same time. And from the very beginning, I just was really amazed that there was a chemical that you could put into your body that completely changed your psyche. And suddenly I felt less anxious. I felt like I belonged more. I felt more comfortable in my own skin. And it was kind of a profound experience from the start. And then uh, in high school is, is where things began to accelerate a little bit. And I began experimenting with hallucinogens, which I also thought were incredibly cool. Having a psychedelic experience can be really truly amazing and powerful and um, can be a, a learning experience that's very meaningful and uh, I, I went to a magnet school during middle school and so when I went to high school all the kids in that district knew each other from kindergarten all the way through and um, the way that I linked up with people was through smoking weed and I hung out with the stoner musician kids and we would smoke a bowl and, and play guitar and sing together and and at first it was all like very innocent and beautiful and naive but I ended up on a journey that I didn't really sign up for initially but Sometimes life gives you unexpected turns and you just have to deal with it. The problem is some of the same people that you might buy pot from might also have cocaine or they might have pills. And so being in that world, I was exposed to cocaine and benzodiazepines, which are like Xanax, Valium, etc., and opioids. And um, by the time I was 18, I was so addicted to alcohol and cocaine that I went to my first inpatient treatment center. And it was kind of a hybrid between my parents really wanting me to go and me admittedly realizing that this was not sustainable and that I had a problem. Um, and so that, that was the first of six inpatient treatments that I went to from age 18 to the last one I went to, I was 27 or 28. So it's been a, a very like long and tortuous journey for sure. For most people, it is like my story that you have a period of remittance, then you have a relapse, and then you have a period of abstinence, and then you have a relapse. Um, but each time um, you learn different things and hopefully are able to take those things that you learned and build on that. You know, kind of like every time you get injured climbing, you may have to take two or three months off and you might get weaker in some ways, but I think we also get smarter in other ways and we learn how to train in ways that are more sustainable and we learn how to respect our bodies and back off instead of doing just one last go when you're already tired and thrashed at the end of the day. It's very similar.
One thing that happened every time is once I started using again, I lost climbing and I quickly lost any job, any relationship um, because most of the day was spent trying to find money to get what I needed to get to feel like I was okay. What, what I call the last stop on the train station is opioids. And, and that is the case for many people who struggle with addiction because opioids have such a pronounced withdrawal that is so painful and unpleasant that you get stuck in a cycle of you have to keep using because you're simultaneously chasing pleasure. You know, we talked about the motivational system and it's a double-edged sword with that. You're chasing pleasure, but you're also desperately avoiding pain because withdrawal is just heinous. It feels like pins and needles through your whole body, cold sweats, but more than all the physical symptoms, which are very unpleasant, is the psychological sense of dread and anxiety and fear and knowing that you could fix it if you just had this one thing. Whereas when you have the flu, you're like, okay, I have the flu. It's going to take a few days. I just need to like wait it out. And there's kind of this acceptance to that. But when you're in withdrawal, you're like, I know I can fix this. So every day is kind of that chase. You feel like a hamster on a, on a hamster wheel. It's terribly painful because all those wonderful things I just talked about that climbing can enrich a person's life with, I not only lost all those, but I also gained a world of problems. Physically, I deteriorated and became skinny and emaciated. Mentally, I became erratic. Emotionally, I became filled with fear. And then spiritually, I felt empty inside. It's a daily quest every day, a mission to go find the one thing that will make me feel okay, that is also killing me. The only thing that gave me connection was to have my drug. And it was a fleeting connection that was not reciprocal. I gave up everything to have that. And it gave me nothing in return other than almost death. Relapse isn't quite as simple as not having enough willpower. Addiction is physiologically hard to overcome because over time, it overwhelms the brain's control circuit by dulling its sensitivity to rewards like dopamine while increasing expectation for more pleasure. It's important to know that relapse is as possible as it is common. However, claiming it's a natural part of the recovery process suggests that they go hand in hand. Because relapse is a process rather than an event, knowing triggers, identifying solutions, and being willing to modify the plan are all ways to meet people where they're at. Kyle was familiar with the experience, but his relapse last October was different. I had about four years clean, and during that time, I um, was able to get my bachelor's degree from UNC Asheville, which... You know, in the despair of addiction, I thought to myself, I'll never do it. Like, I'll never be able to get a degree. I'll never be able to get a real job. Like, I, this is just my fate. Like, I'm just doomed to living this life of kind of squalor. But I was able to stay clean for four years, get a degree. And during that time, I worked at a treatment center and I was able to help other people that were in recovery and that was really meaningful work. It was really supportive of my recovery because I was constantly in an environment where we were discussing topics related to recovery and addiction and also giving back. I think that being of service is a really important part of recovery and just life. But this most recent relapse was very different. I began drinking and I 
had this delusional thought that somehow since I had been abstaining for over four years that perhaps, you know, and this is the danger of being too much of a nerd and a geek is that you can contrive these bogus rationalizations that, you know, somehow, oh, my neurocircuitry has probably had enough opportunity to rewire and to heal and maybe I can establish a new relationship with this behavior. And at first, it was like that. And I was like, I'm cured. This is amazing. I drank normally, quote unquote, a few times where I would have a beer or two. But it's so insidious the way that that will creep up. Because once I let my guard down and felt, oh, I'm, I'm normal now. I don't have to worry about anything. I wasn't being vigilant. And so I started drinking a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then the problem with alcohol, people call marijuana a gateway drug, and I beg to differ. I think that alcohol is the ultimate gateway drug, not only to other drugs, but also to very bad decisions. <laughs> you know, And it's amazing when you look at the statistics of people who are incarcerated and how many of them committed their crime while they were inebriated. It's kind of staggering, but I digress. And it's legal. And it's legal. <laughs> Whoa. Um, but anyway, so when I would get drunk enough, I lost my inhibitions and I lost my ability to decide not to use hard drugs. And so over the summer last year, when I was in 10 sleep, I mean, what am I gonna go ask a cowboy if they know where I can get some cocaine or heroin or something? Although who knows, maybe. <laughs> but uh, the problem was once I was in a place like Salt Lake City or passing through Denver, you know, you can go to any low SES neighborhood in an inner city and just start talking to people or go to a homeless encampment and start talking to people and find what it is that you think you want in that moment of time, which of course isn't what I actually want. And so I actually had an overdose that was near fatal and that happened on Halloween of last year. And... Uh, what happened was I was on the way to the Red to meet some good friends, and I stopped in Knoxville almost against my own will. It was this bizarre experience of, of watching myself exit, like from a third-person perspective, thinking, what am I doing? Next thing I know, I'm under a bridge in a homeless encampment, and I'm talking to people, trying to find what I want, you know, uh, which is an opiate. And I found it, and using intravenous opioids was never safe to begin with. But in today's landscape, most of it is being cut with fentanyl. I don't know if you're familiar, but fentanyl is a fully synthetic opioid that is 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine. And for someone who does not have a tolerance, one milligram is enough for a fatal overdose, which is, I mean, we're talking about grains of sand here. And so I, I used that night and I went unconscious in my car and was unconscious for about nine hours. And my right glute was pinned against the car door long enough that it occluded the blood flow in the muscle. And so the muscle tissue began to die and those cells released myoglobin. Myoglobin is actually toxic if it's just released freely into your bloodstream. And so it clogged up the nephrons in my kidneys resulting in kidney failure that they call this process rhabdomyolysis and uh, so I, I went to the ER and sadly you know with COVID the hospitals are very very busy and I had to wait for about seven hours to get into a bed as I was slowly dying. We're gonna take a short break so don't go anywhere or we're a podcast you can take us everywhere.
Patagonia reintroduces clean climbing, a philosophy that challenges us to ask ourselves what constitutes success. From the commercial introduction of chalks in 1972 to cams in 1978, clean climbing meant that we could finally climb free. This was the beginning of modern climbing. Yvonne Chouinard and Tom Frost argue that this ethic of style over summit should also inspire climbers and mountaineers to restore our commitments to each other and to the planet we're working to save. Go deeper and check out the 2022 reflection on the state of clean climbing. Bring back clean climbing by Mei Li Hung on the Patagonia website. Visit patagonia.com/stories for more. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I think that a lot of us who really value critical thinking and have a supercomputer in our pocket have the ability to do differential diagnosis and say, okay, this is what happened. Like, these are the different things that it could be. What are my symptoms? And I just knew in my heart that if it was left untreated, it was going to be fatal. Luckily, They were able to save my life. Um, I'm very fortunate for the medical staff, and I ended up being in that hospital for about 17 days and have kidney dialysis, and then I had to continue dialysis for another two to three weeks after my discharge on an outpatient basis. And thankfully, my kidneys resumed functioning, and I'm okay now. Uh, and I haven't used since then, and it was a powerful experience. Kyle's relapse was after four years of continued abstinence, so it would be easy for him to be discouraged. But as it turns out, it would be harder for him to just give up. I have dealt with this for 20 years, and it would be easy to throw in the towel and say, "Why bother? I'm clearly a malfunctioning. <laughs> I have a malfunctioning operating system. There's too many bugs. We'll never, we'll never get a software update that'll work. You know, might as well just throw in the towel. But I can't. I love life, and I want to be here. And I love the people in my life. I love climbing, and I want to become a PT and be able to give back. I want to find purpose and meaning in my life. The fact is, addiction has taken from me having an ability to join society, like as a productive working member. You know, I've had so many setbacks, setback after setback, and there's a lot of shame around that. And when someone says, "Hey, what do you do for work?" you know, and you say, "Like, well, I actually almost just died four and a half months ago, and I'm trying to get back on my feet right now." It's really vulnerable to say that, even though I think a lot of people would be like, "Hey, man, good for you." You know, way to like fight this thing tooth and nail, and not just slowly slip away and and fade into that good night.、Um, But alas, I'm here. I'm alive, and the fight goes on. <laughs> We would be remiss to not acknowledge some of the brutal conditioning that a majority of men have grown up with, and how it's contributed to a collective societal expectation that they need to be tough, they need to be successful and brave. 
The reason that we don't see more masculine openness or tenderness isn't that men lack the capacity, but the conditions haven't always felt safe enough to honor their feelings in order to soften the armor. So how do we move past the societal conditioning and start to heal from toxic gender roles and behavior? How can men step out of the frame of patriarchy and how do we create space for them to feel safe enough to do so? I feel like I've absorbed some of that conditioning that if a man doesn't have productive, meaningful work, what's he good for? I loved the show Breaking Bad, and there's a really beautiful exchange between Gus Fring and Walter White where Gus says to Walter, What does a man do, Walter? A man provides. A man provides for his family and he has nothing in return, you know? And so for me, I'm like, oh, well, I guess I am useless and have no value, (laughs) according to that paradigm. We fling around buzzwords like toxic masculinity, but that alone fails to create the much needed space to address it. Studies show that if we remove the pressure we place on men to behave within certain masculine norms, sexual violence could be reduced by, at minimum, 69%, bullying and violence by 40%, and male suicide in the U.S. by 39%. A lot of the old paradigms are changing, and we can see some of the impact and where we all have a role to play in creating a world where men feel safe to use their physical and emotional strength as much as they do for rock climbing. I think the landscape is slowly shifting. I'm really happy that most of my male friends and I hug. Most of my male friends and I say, I love you. The problem with that is that sometimes it's really easy to have two or three things that make it seem like the big picture has gone away. And the fact is that I still have this deep sense of inner turmoil surrounding the fact that if I don't have work, I don't have worth. And I think that work is important and I don't wanna take away from that. I think that having meaningful work is one of the most health promoting things that an individual can have. If you have work that is meaningful to you and fills you with a sense of purpose and passion and allows you to connect with community and allows you to feel like you're making a difference and helping others, that's so positively health promoting. But I think that it's also important to give ourselves a break sometimes You know, like I don't think that in this point of time, there's any reason for me to feel shame or guilt or to punish myself or be cruel or mean to myself. I'm doing the best that I can. You know, we have to show ourselves some compassion when we're trying to get back on our feet. And I think that it's okay to say, you know, Kyle, you're doing all right today. Um, You're not a worthless piece of crap. Internalized criticism partly comes from our need to constantly succeed, to be the best. And all outcomes influence our perception of self because of it. And it's all good when we're achieving and everything's an on-site. But that kind of success isn't linear. We've all been there. But what a game changer it is when you do something as simple as being nice to you. You know, I think there's an awesome parallel there because sending is like a reward And then all of the work behind the scenes is sort of like this process. And I think that what drugs are essentially is a human being striving to have the reward without the work. And when you separate those things, it's really problematic. It's not possible to just be sending all the time, not at your limit, 
No one, even people who climb V15, V16. And a lot of times we don't see the 30 days that that person put into working that problem, chucking their chalk bag at the wall and screaming the F-bomb and getting really close and then botching the last move only to regress for the next three or four sessions. The times where I've clipped the chains or topped a boulder that were the most satisfying were the times that I had to work my butt off, you know? And I think that in the same vein, we live in a society that is so full of opportunities to be sold. Here, you can have the reward without the work. Fast food, scroll social media and get that bop, 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 bop. But at the end of the day, you know, you scroll social media for four or five hours, how do you feel afterwards? Do you feel uplifted and energetic and ready to go out and get it, you know? <laughs> and all of these things can be okay, you know, in, in moderation. But we have to be careful because, you know, our motivational system is so vulnerable to being hijacked. And so the more exposure that we have to fast food or to anything that tries to give you a reward without the work, it's a slippery slope. And so, yeah, I think that the best way that we can arm ourselves is to try to be aware of our patterns and to be introspective and to see when things are working for us and when they're not. Most people understand addiction when it comes to dependence on substances, but behavioral addictions can be problematic as well. Introspection in tandem with experience has allowed Kyle the ability to check in and moderate his activities for a better life balance. We talk about the term metacognition in psychology, which is the idea of thinking about thinking. And what's so funny about that is that can kind of go ad infinitum. You can think about thinking about thinking about thinking. <laughs> and that can actually spiral out of control and be neurotic to a point. So, you know, I, I think that my initial introspection was probably born a little bit out of a neurotic process of being sort of like anxious and being a little bit paranoid. But I think that things that are born out of malice adaptive processes can become adaptive and we can sort of retool them and repurpose them and make it a great strength. And I think a lot of us are really distracted in today's world. And I think that that distraction can really impede our ability to really think deeply. And I think that's why for myself and for so many others, if we're asked to sit quietly and meditate for 15 minutes, everyone's like, no, please don't make me do it. I don't wanna go in there. <laughs> Instagram has been incredibly successful capitalizing on our compulsive addiction to affirmation. And I have to check myself because, you know, sometimes you can just be at the whim of the algorithm and your post just might not get that much visibility and you might get half the number of likes that you anticipated for a shot that you spent hours editing that is one of your most proud shots you've ever taken and then you just kind of have to stomach that and say like you know what i really love this shot but if i have a really successful post that feeling it only lasts for a fleeting moment until I'm like, I gotta come up with a new post. So I think that we would be really smart to be wary of the dangers of social media and to not just sort of like blindly participate in a way that um, isn't conscious.
social media can be beautiful. And I, I can't tell you how many times that I've been able to find a place to stay or people to have dinner with, you know, et cetera. It's a wonderful tool for connection, but it, it can also be sad sometimes when we start to really uh, lose our ability to pay attention. It's like we used to write letters to each other. We used to read the newspaper and those things are very slow. And then it was TV and now it's like Instagram and DMs, you know, and again, there's that relationship between like the timeliness of the process and the reward. And it's just, like we keep distilling our attention span down. And the problem with technology is that you adopt it or you become obsolete, right? And I think a lot of people refuse to participate in social media. It's like, yeah, you might have some peace of mind, but you're also gonna be at social events where everybody is talking about certain things that you have no idea what's going on. Inevitably, you'll probably feel left out. And so there's always that opportunity cost. And I think it's hard, really hard to choose wisely because, you know, like you said, we live in a world of, of half-truths. Um, because now, like, you look at reels and it's like what everybody wants to do on Instagram. Reels where it's just like, wham, bam, 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 peace, you know? And so for those people that are spilling out really heartfelt things, you know, how many people are gonna read that paragraph? I mean, or even a sentence. There's a lot at stake, right? I mean, we're losing our ability to talk to one another, to really talk to one another, to have conversation. So it's it's tough. But interestingly, I think that podcasts are actually one of the few ways that we have left to really um, like have an audience for a message that takes more than a sentence or two. And it's probably only because climbers spend a lot of time in the car driving and they want something to listen to because <laughs> they can't scroll while driving. That's the only reason. <laughs> you scroll while you're driving, folks. Yeah, PSA. In a pre-selfie era, I think that we used to move a lot slower. Maybe we paid more attention. Maybe we had more time. It's hard to measure something like time when life gets distilled down to 15 seconds of visuals and trendy hip-hop music. And while TikTok's whipped coffee and upbeat dances gave us hope and distraction during quarantine, there's still a line between overuse and abuse of technology and how we choose to utilize it. Social media in 2022 has become more polarizing than I think any of us could have imagined. Humans have a mechanism built into our neurons that allow us to empathize with others and to have immediate, genuine emotional responses when we have conversation face-to-face. -face. Mirror neurons respond in accordance to others when we see them expressing an emotion because we're actually wired to see people as similar to us rather than different. We're wired for a connection. And while we may have taken the internet and turned it into the largest web of connections, we're losing something in common threads and forums and doom scrolls and Instagram reels. Empathy is our highest capacity. The vicarious experience through another's thoughts, feelings, stories, and words. And stories give us some place to go, to rest and feel held. At the root, all humans are looking for some connection. We're biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to belong. And that's especially true in a digitally engaged world. Connection isn't just an exchange of information. It's been said that it's an exchange of humanity, and it fundamentally can't work if we're trying to be something that we're not. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. And I think that it's really difficult to pay attention, uh, at least for the duration, you know, that you can, like we are doing right now face to face, um, because it's just a flat two dimensional screen with a bunch of like grainy renderings of humans. It's not that compelling, you know, whereas like you said, like when you look into someone's eyes and you're occupying physical space with that person, 
they're three-dimensional. And obviously when the sound is transmitted, it eventually becomes three-dimensional on the other side, but it's not the same as being in a live environment, hearing the sound occupy that physical space. It's, it's different. And you know, as we're talking about all these things, I think it's important to recognize and communicate to a listening audience that myself and I'm sure you, Kathy, are guilty of all the different things that we've been talking about. And in no way are we trying to be like, oh, like we're so cool. Like we never scroll Instagram or do anything. And like, oh yeah, like I'm so balanced, you know. But at the same time, that again, you know, we've talked about a lot of fine lines here and we've talked a lot about balance and about moderation and about how like just about any behavior or stimulus can go from well-adapted and functional to maladaptive and dysfunctional. I mean, I think we probably all struggle with that. Um, no, Kyle, I've obviously evolved to a higher plane where I'm impervious to the toxicity and deliberate awfulness and capitalism of social media. Okay, okay, I lied. That's not true. But I did install a one hour daily reminder to GTFO Instagram and go be a person in the world. It's been really nice. If you haven't already done it, I highly recommend on the one hand, sharing stories and pictures of life allows us to interact with communities outside of our own. And it does give people a platform during a time when we need to hear more diverse stories than ever before. But with the good that social media has the potential to bring, also comes the bad. We're all a little burnt out from scrolling, and yet so many of us remain subscribed. We make sure that stories get packaged up in the shiniest wrapping to appeal to the masses. Sometimes we play the algorithm game, even though we know we'll lose. Little by little, we're hypnotized by shallow, toxic culture that radiates from image-based social media apps because it's addictive by design. We owe it to ourselves to take breaks, step back, unplug, and create boundaries for ourselves. Scroll for good news, or don't scroll at all today. Be intentional with checking your phone, because rest assured, it will all be there the next morning. And when you wake up in the morning, the checkmark by your name, the thumbnail, the perfect and most eloquent of captions still won't matter as much as your mental well-being and the people you love. At the end of the day, how we live our lives is more important than how we say we live our lives on a screen. A lot of the ways that I diffuse my anxiety socially is by trying to make other people laugh. Uh, because if I make other people laugh and feel comfortable, then it makes me feel more comfortable. And, you know, the fact is, is that I don't get the refuge of alcohol or drugs anymore. They're life-threatening for me. And so I have to find other ways um, to deal with that. You know, I've tried a lot of sports in my life, mostly in the outdoor adventure sport category. I used to ski a lot. I worked a couple of winter seasons in uh, Mammoth in California and loved that. I love skiing. I also mountain biked for a long time, cross-country style. I, I I'm amazed at the people that do downhill. It just seems crazy to just be willing to break all your ribs. <laughs> um, but anyway, those sports were amazing. But when I found climbing, I just was so blown away by how it seems to satisfy so many different fundamental human needs. And that became sort of the premise for the idea of inner peak training because climbing for me satisfies me emotionally because you're dealing with 
fear. You're learning how to manage fear. And it's not just fear of heights or fear of falling. It's also fear of failure and fear of inadequacy, which are really deeply rooted in the human psyche. Learning to work through that, I think, is such an amazing process of self-development. And the mental and intellectual component, I think, is incredible because it's problem solving. You know, hey, if I pose this side pull with my foot in this particular vector, then I'm going to feel stable in this position and be able to do this move. That's so cool. And then in the physical realm, we develop strength, power and endurance. And I think that a lot of climbers have the experience of going from maybe not being that psyched on the way that they look or the way that their body feels and then finding climbing and suddenly being very confident and feeling like I feel really strong in my body I feel really fit I feel really capable and I feel beautiful and I think all those things are amazing and the word spiritual is very loaded and and when I say spiritual I just refer to a feeling of deep connection and on, on the spiritual side of things I think for a lot of people climbing is a way to connect with nature and be in beautiful outdoor spaces and it's also a way to connect with this feeling of being in a flow state uh, I, I don't know about you but when I'm on a, a hard onside or a hard red point I just feel nothing but the present moment I feel nothing but my breath my skin against the rock, the breeze in the air, hopefully, if there is one. <laughs> and I think that that flow state is amazing because I know that for myself, my mind is often so cluttered and filled with different thoughts that I don't even feel like I author, you know, worried about this, worried about that. I'm like, who is even thinking this? Like, I'm not even choosing these thoughts. And so when you're in that present moment, it's just, it's just beautiful and can be very liberating. And then there's the social connectivity, which we touched on earlier. You feel like you can go anywhere and just have like a ready-made group of friends. It, it, it's kind of like the idea, I'm sure you've heard the metaphor of like a three-legged stool. If you remove a leg, it falls over. And, you know, I think humans, we have a lot more legs than that. You know, we have like our social, our intellectual element, our spiritual element, our emotional element, our physical element. And I think that we have to be mindful about nourishing ourselves in all those ways, because when we're well, we can be there for others and help other people be well. Kyle can't turn back time. None of us can. We're not even sure that if we had that kind of power, we'd do anything differently at all. Because one, hindsight, and we also don't live in a parallel universe. We don't get to play the what if game in life. But what if you could tell your younger self not necessarily what to avoid, but rather what there is to look forward to? What the future ahead could look like if you just knew to hold fast through the hard parts? First of all, I would tell 13-year-old Kyle that he is enough and that he's lovable and that he's worthy exactly the way that he is and that he doesn't have to do anything or say anything or be funny or be smart or be something to be worthy of love. I would say that you have to look forward to a beautifully mixed bag of pain and pleasure, joy and suffering, ups and downs, that if you are able to sit with those experiences rather than flee from them will help you to become a kinder, gentler, more loving person that feels okay and feels comfortable in my own skin. Destigmatizing mental health and substance abuse 
is important not just for people in that community but also for everyone as a whole and i think there's several arguments for that one being that almost everyone is touched by mental health or addiction in some way it, it is in incredibly unlikely that any human being doesn't have a friend or family member, at least one, that struggles with depression, anxiety, alcoholism, you name it. And when we're able to support each other as individuals, it makes us better as a whole, as a collective society. I think that if we neglect the unhoused, if we neglect the people that suffer from mental health and substance use problems, which by the way, those two populations are very co-occurring, if we neglect the downtrodden, the poor, then I think that we're, we're reduced to our lowest common denominator and I don't think that we're able to truly thrive. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia, not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. 